Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What the heck is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Kind of Funny X-Cast, your home for all things Xbox here at Kind of Funny. Of course, I'm one of your hosts, Snowbike Mike, and today I'm joined by just one of my gaming dads, the rogue one, Mr. Gary Witta. Gary, how are you today? I'm good. Glad to be here as always. I love the glasses on the intro. Very nice looking that was, right I mean, there. I, compl- I, I completely <laughs> forgot that I needed to put them on, otherwise I can't see a thing. Thought it was a dope move right there, but Gary... One gaming dad down, but we got a very special guest, a very dope guest that I can't wait for our audio and visual watchers and listeners to tune into and hang out with. It is the game director of the recent release, Pentiment, from Obsidian Entertainment, Josh Sawyer, joining us today. Josh, what's going on? Welcome. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us and, of course, sharing some time with us. Congratulations on the big game release to you and the team. How are you feeling today? A little tired uh you know it's uh releasing a game is exhausting obviously you know we had monday was the embargo for the reviews and then that was incredible seeing all the feedback that people had for that and then the game itself actually coming out and trying to stay on top of all the new reviews and the user feedback and uh trying to track bugs and and fix those was just mentally really exhausting so i didn't get a lot of sleep last night but um I'm here again today, and we're fixing bugs and doing interviews. So That's awesome. It's great to see you. It's great to have you. And you look energized. You know, you say that it's been a long one, but you're looking good. You're looking energized. What is something that for you as a veteran in the games industry, something that keeps you motivated or energized on the long haul once you get to the final finish line? What keeps you going? Is there a certain thing you like to do, maybe a bike ride or read a book, catch up with friends? What energizes you again? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's all about pacing, really. I mean, I do, I do uh, endurance stuff with, with cycling and weightlifting, and um, you know, it's uh, you kind of learn both in endurance sports and uh, making games is kind of an endurance sport. You have to pace yourself, and you, you have to know to not push yourself too hard, too fast, and then when you do get to the end, you, you need to have the energy, the mental energy, and the fortitude, and, and still have the enthusiasm to really push through it. And, um, you know, the, the gaming industry has not been known for having a particularly great culture about work-life balance, but I think our team has done a pretty good job of uh, staying healthy and sane when it comes to our schedules. And we did push toward the end, but it was nothing too, too nuts. So, um, you know, it was just knowing that we were all seeing it come together. You know, we all took some time to play the game before launch. And we saw, you know, like how far it had come and how much progress we were making week to week. And that gave us the energy to really push through and just put those finishing touches on it for, uh, for launch. That's really great, Josh. Well, we're really excited to have you here today. We're going to talk all things Pentiment 
and beyond with you. We're really lucky to have you as a guest. But, of course, i got to jump right into the housekeeping so we can talk about this interview right now. Don't forget, everybody, this is the Kind of Funny X-Cast. We post each and every Thursday at 6 a.m. West Coast, Best Coast time on YouTube.com slash Kind of Funny Games. And, of course, on podcast services around the globe. Don't forget the team here at Kind of Funny is now Epic Games Partners, which means you can go out and support the team in a brand new way by using our Epic Creator Code, Kind of Funny, at checkout anytime you're buying games off the Epic Game Store. Maybe upgrading your look in Rocket League or buying the season pass in Fortnite. Consider using that Epic Creator Code, Kind of Funny. Of course, talking about support, all of this in the spare bedroom wouldn't be possible without the support of each and every one of you, the Kind of Funny best friends around the globe. And we'd like to thank our Patreon producers for the month of November, thank you to Morgan Lorraine, Fargo Brady, Christopher Rodriguez, the kind of funny Destiny 2 PC clan, Tall Tree 81, Joseph A. Carlson, One Up Pest Control, Carrie Palmer, Elliot, Brian Chaney, uh, Trevor Starkey, Super Daddy Kyle, Undertopian, David Mintel, Eric Velasquez, <laughs> Scotty Wyatt, Alex Gertal, Al Tribesman, Jason L., James Davis, at James Davis Makes, Mick Aberson, at Biologist, Ryan T. from Tennessee, Derek Gregg, and Donald Eccles. Thank you all so much for your support over on Patreon, and thank you to all of our Patreon watchers and listeners that are here with us live during this interview today. We see you in the live chat. Remember, if you have questions that you would like to have answered by Josh all about Pentiman, please put him in the chat, and we'll talk about that with him later on. Of course, this week, the X-Cast is sponsored by Rocket Money, Policy Genius, and Shopify. But we'll tell you all about that in just a little bit. Let's get into it. Josh, we're back with you, and I want to know what the heck, where did this all start with Pentiment? We talk about passion projects, and a lot of eyes have been on Obsidian Entertainment this year with quote-unquote passion projects, of course, grounded earlier, and now your team with Pentiment. Where was the idea to make Pentiment? Where did it all come from, and why Pentiment? Yeah, I mean, it started, you know, I guess 30 years ago. I played a historical role-playing game in 1992 called Darklands, and it's a really weird game, a very unusual game. I had never played a role-playing game that was uh, set in a historical time period or like other than fantasy or sci-fi. I hadn't played anything set in the real world. And even though there were fantastic elements, it was really very heavily rooted in history. And between that and uh, theater stuff that I was doing, I started becoming interested in um, history. And I, I eventually went to school and got a degree in history, uh, focusing on the Holy Roman Empire in the early modern period. And when I got into the industry, I really had this this feeling like I really would like to make my own historical game at some point. And initially I thought it would be something like Darklands, um, something a little more hardcore party-based, you know, kind of a more traditional isometric game. But around the time that we were acquired by Microsoft, I had an idea for something that was more like Night in the Woods which is to say a narrative adventure game with a really strong, distinct visual style that's really about just uh, dialogue and exploration and the relationships you have with characters and only light gameplay elements. And because Microsoft has uh, a real focus on Game Pass and having a nice stable of uh, very interesting projects on it, I thought this would be a, f a perfect focus if we did it as a small-scale project with a small team, small number of people, uh, not really big budget, uh, and that's kind of how it took off. 
Wow, Josh, it seems like you nailed all of that with the of course, setting and tone, <laughs> the art, right? I, I can't wait to talk about the art with you. Of course, shout out to Hannah Kennedy, which, uh, you know, yeah, when I went behind incredible. closed doors with you two, we got to learn a little bit more about the art side of things. But, yeah, let's talk about that. Of course, you bring up Game Pass, and I know that's the big quote coming around right now, I believe, from you in an earlier interview this week. But, of course, the power of Game Pass and you and the pitch to Microsoft and the Obsidian team what was that like pitching such a small project and such a different project than what we are, you know, see and looking from, from these big AAA studios? Um, you know, the pitch process was around the time of the acquisition. Um, you know, I went to my boss and I said, I need to make this. Um, you know, I've been working on very specific types of games for <laughs> 20 years now. And I really want to try to do something different. I really want to try to do something small. And I said, I don't want a lot of people and I don't want a lot of money for it. I just, I want to do it the way that I want to do it without compromising it for any other purpose. And I did tell him like, I want, I, the idea behind this is that it is not going to be something that's expensive to make. It's not going to be priced high for the consumer. And if, if, you know, if it makes sense for game pass, I think I'd love for it to be on game pass. And so for my boss, Fergus uh, Urquhart, he was very supportive of it and he let me get going on it. And by the time we showed it to Microsoft uh, or Xbox more properly, um, we already had a vertical slice completed and it was a lot easier to show what we were doing than talk about it. Like, cause if I describe it as Night in the Woods meets Name of the Rose, it's like one, you might not get the references and two, you might not see how those things go together, but showing the game and what the gameplay was and what the art style was, and then explaining what we were trying to do uh, made it a, a much easier sell, and Xbox has been supportive of it ever since that first uh, showing that we had. Wow, that's really, really cool. It's really interesting you said you had the idea for this game around the same time that Microsoft acquired you guys, because that wasn't that long ago, right? What was the whole like timeline on this game from beginning to where we are today? Um, I think it's about three years. I don't know exactly when it started. I will say like I had vague inklings of the idea of a night in the woods style 2d game maybe historical after i worked on pillars of eternity 2 Deadfire, and that was mid 2018 and the acquisition was not tremendously long after that so you know it kind of just slid very conveniently into a, a nice time frame and we just got rolling on it at first it was just uh i worked on it and hannah kennedy worked on it and then we got a producer and got a few more people i think our vertical slice was maybe five people and then eventually we expanded to 13 um, for the last like nine months of development. Even with a, even with a, you said a smaller team and a, and a lower budget, was there any, I, I kind of have to believe that there was at least some resistance or reticence on the part of, well, I work in Hollywood, right? And it's like, if, if, they don't, if, if they can't figure out how to market it and like put the poster together, it, it ain't happening. So I can just imagine like you going to like the people that you've got to pitch it to and say, right, you're a scribe in 16th century Europe. <laughs> And the marketing people just going, oh, my God, like, is there, was it prickly at any point when you're trying to sell people on the idea of doing something very atypical like this? No, honestly, it was it was very easy. Um, you know, there were more there were more debates about what the title should be than anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, it's there's everyone always wants to argue about titles, to be honest. Uh, it doesn't matter what game I've worked on, but like the game itself and the style of it and the scope. There was never really, there was never really any argument about it. Like maybe some people might have been skeptical, but if so, they didn't really voice it. You know, everyone was perfectly content to, 
I think, again, I think once we had the vertical slice, the vertical slice doesn't look that much different from what we shipped. So, um, I mean, it, it does, but like only in polish, I would say. In the fundament, it really looks like the same game. So I think if you see, if you if you can imagine something like, you know, 25% worse than what shipped, and if you still are on board with that idea and you're like, oh, I think that looks fundamentally kind of cool and the idea sounds interesting, then you're probably going to be okay with us making it. And that's that's kind of how it worked. So like I said, if people were really opposed to it, they certainly didn't voice it or one of the <laughs> really sh show it. So yeah, it went pretty well. Just just like a quick observation, because I'd spent a, a short time playing it. One of the things yeah. I think is really interesting about it, and you don't see many examples of this in gaming. Like, there's AAA games, right, high production values, and indie games, which are, you know can be smaller and quirkier, but aren't necessarily going to have like the AAA production values. This is a game that like on the surface, everything from like the... The you know the 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 log line on it right here it's, it's 16th century Europe it's it's a mystery it all kind of looks like the Bayou tapestry like it's all it's very very specific and and kind of niche and I can imagine like the actual indie version of this game right where the production values aren't quite as high but in playing it one of the first things that I was struck with is like within kind of an indie framework it actually also seems to have AAA production values. Like something simple as when the text appears on screen. Yeah. You can actually see like the ink kind of like fill out the letters and, and then you can see it dry. Like there's so, there's so many little kind of AAA type touches in the game. And this, is, this, this isn't really so much of a question, it's just a, an observation on like, that I really appreciated the fact that it, it had, it, it's obviously an indie sensibility from the top down, but at the same time, it's kind of shot through with those kind of high-end production values. It's kind of a really interesting hybrid of the two things. Yeah, um, you know, it's, and that was the nice thing is that, um, you know, I don't, you know, I know indie developers and indie developers work under a lot of really difficult constraints. Um, and I don't, you know, sometimes people refer to this as like an indie game. And I, I think that that's unfair to indie developers and kind of insulting to them because like, um, we're supported by Xbox and Microsoft and that's fantastic. And, um, Frankly, the fonts and their rendering are the most expensive. Um, they're like the most expensive uh, features in our game. And I, I think it would be very difficult for an indie developer, unless they had a lot of money to work with, to spend the time and energy that we did. Um, but it was important to me and it was important to the feeling of the project to do that. And I think that, you know, working within a company that's been here for, uh, geez, 19 years now almost, um, you know, that uh, and being part of this larger company that really made it possible for us to to spend the time and effort to really uh, focus on those things and make them as polished as they needed to be. Yeah, you can feel the polish. You can see the polish. I really loved you talked about that quality of the fonts coming in, Gary. I loved the, 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 the little, little mistakes get corrected yeah. in real oh, time. Like a nice yeah. Touch. yeah, the ambient noise, right, of like you can feel it. You're outside in the church corridor and you're just hearing the birds chirp. You hear the rain softly drop right there. And then the music hits at certain points. I really loved all of that. And so, yeah, that's really cool to hear Josh from the opposite side of what it looked like from behind the scenes. What I want to talk about is that small team for a second, right, because you're on the circuit. Everybody wants to talk to you, the big game director. But, of course, there is a small team behind you. You said 13. Of course, we want to give them their flowers and roses there and give them the shout-out. What were some of the members you can tell us about? What was it like pitching them and bringing them onto the team? Were people excited, of course, to work next to you and fulfill this vision of yours? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of the people that I've been working with, I've been working with for many years, like 10 or more years, and then some people I worked with for the first time, um, you know, on this project. 
And, you know, it's an interesting mix because obviously the people that I've worked with, they know who I am. Um, then there were people who came to the project who maybe had some, you know, they understood who I was in the industry, but they didn't really know me. Um, and then there were people who came onto the team and they really didn't know anything about me other than they knew that I was the director of this project. Um, but they didn't even necessarily understand that I'm the studio design director or the other games that I directed. Uh, so it was an interesting mix uh, of people. And, you know, we built the team over the three-year process, but, you know, Hannah Kennedy was the foundation of the art style. She was the first person to work on the game with me. Um, she, she worked with Sujin Pak, who is our other uh, primary 2D artist, and 95%, maybe even closer to 98% of the game was just created by those two artists, which is really fantastic and incredible. They've done a, a fantastic job. Uh, Kathy Nichols is our animation director. Kathy's been an animator at Obsidian for quite a number of years. Um, most notably, she worked on South Park, The Stick of Truth, um, which you know some of the, gave some of our developers a background in 2D animation. Um, you know, we have a blend of kind of 2D and 3D animation styles, um, but she and um, uh, we have a number of animators, um, Elena, Adam, Sunder, Cat, uh, Snaith, they, um, they did all of our characters and our visual effects and things like that. Um, Kat Wensky and her team at Team Audio, um, they did all of our audio work. Uh, Brett Kloster and Nikola Todorovic were our two programmers. They did all the coding in the game. Um, Alec Fry is my producer. Alec has been indispensable. He's made like an incredible amount of stuff happen. It's been it's been really awesome having him. Like the stuff would not have come together without him. And uh, yeah, man, I hope I didn't miss anyone in there. But that's. <laughs> I think that's about it, but like, um, you know, everyone just has, uh, everyone has to do a lot of, a lot of different jobs when you have a small team, you can't be hyper-specialized, everyone's kind of jumping, oh, I'm sorry, Matthew Loyola, I always forget because he's like a one-man army, Matthew, <laughs> Matthew Loyola did the, um, uh, all the work on our areas, he did like all of our area scripting and our cutscenes, working with our animation team. Um, and yeah, really fantastic. And then also, even though they're not within the studio, we worked with, uh, Riley Cran and his team at Lettermatic on the fonts, which are incredible. You can look up articles about all the work they did on that. Alchemy Music, uh, which is an early music ensemble. Um, I actually contacted them through, through a college friend because I started as a music major in college, but then I remained friends with a lot of those uh, people who went on to become professional musicians. And then uh, I worked with Kristen Hader, also known as Lingua Ignota, for our end track, which I think just is incredible. And uh, yeah, so... There you go. Heck yeah. Yeah. I wanted to make sure we talk about the team and I actually want to quickly park the bus really quick and talk about the art. I think that is what, when people first see this, their eyes are immediately captured to that awesome art style. It's one of those things where like, even if you're not terribly familiar with the art of that period, like yeah. you kind of recognize it right away as like, oh, this is like a historical piece. You yeah. can probably like get within like a hundred years of when it's supposed to be set just because, you know, we, most people I think are familiar with that kind of art as reflective of that time period. Right? Yeah, and that's what I want to ask you, Josh, is, of course, for our audio listeners out there, maybe people are watching, they'll see the B-roll come up, but, like, how do you describe this art style to people, maybe first-timers or people who haven't seen this yet? Um, you know, the art style is a blend of styles that Hannah came up with that's heavily based on late medieval illuminated manuscripts and early modern woodcuts. So, um there is a manuscript tradition in Europe that goes back like maybe a thousand years or more. Um, you know, you had monastic scriptoria, especially like in Ireland, they have like a really rich tradition. It spread all over um, 
you know, the Isles and then uh, continental Europe. And that went on for centuries. And for a very long time, monastic scriptoria were the places where, by and large, most books were made. They were all made by hand. They were largely in Latin. Some of them would be in other languages, but Latin was kind of the language of the educated classes for most of Europe. And then over time, in the later Middle Ages, 14th century and on, the scriptoria started fading out of view and um, secular either artists or guilds of artists would emerge and that they took over manuscript production. And then in the middle of the 15th century, books really kind of took hold. And um, we are trying to capture that transitional period between the end of the manuscript tradition and the beginning of the print tradition. And Kearsaw Abbey in the game is this kind of scriptorium out of time. Like there, there arguably were very few, if, if any, monastic scriptoria still in, in production at this point in time when the game takes place. But um, for purposes of our story, because Kearsaw is kind of supposed to be an out of time place, we still have this tiny group of monks and Andreas who are making manuscripts, but they also realize that they're on the way out. Like there's a printer even in their town making books. So we really wanted to capture that art style that showed this is the height of hand painted manuscripts but also the emergence of this new beautiful form of woodcut and ink printing and, and color washes. And I think Hannah captured that really perfectly. She crushed it. It's honestly awesome. To yeah, see it's and beautiful. And it has the advantage of almost looking like an illustrated, like fairy tale storybook yeah. as well, yeah, because Gary. there's some crossover there. I'm actually glad that we we're getting nerdy because I, I had a nerdy question Get on the, writing, on the writing side. Oh, okay. that I wanted a wanted a. Again, I've only I've only been playing for like an hour or two, but I'm already getting like a sense of the the vibe. And what a, a, as a writer, I find it really interesting. By the way, some, I don't know if you saw Penny Arcade today, but they made the point that one of the many reasons why the game's getting such good reviews is who reviews video games, writers, and they love <laughs> that this is a game about writers and writing, right? And they appreciate that, and I think that's really really cool. And it's so rare to see like someone like that as the hero of a story. But I wanted to ask you so. It's really interesting, right? So the game's set in, in, in 16th century Europe, and they're speaking English you know, for, our, you know, for our benefit. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting, because if you go back to, like, you go back and like, read Shakespeare, which was like, written around the same time, language back then was, like, even if like, you think about English, the 15th century, 16th century English is so different from what it says. It's like anyone who's ever tried to read or study Shakespeare, it's actually kind of hard to do, because the language is so different from what it has evolved into 500 years later. And in... Playing just the, the small amount of Pentiment that I played, I found it really interesting. I think you do a really good job of like capturing, I don't know if I would say like authenticity, but like verisimilitude, like it feels accurate, it feels authentic, which I think is that, that's the best thing you can shoot for. But at the same time, it, there's also like some contemporary, like I, uh, I was playing today, somebody said, how's it going, which felt very contemporary. I just thought it was really interesting, like how you, how you dialed in on a tone and a voice in trying to bridge that middle ground between having something that feels as authentic as the period in the right, how do you make the, the writing feel as authentic to the period as the art style does, while still, but, but not going so deep into the weeds that people can't understand what they're saying. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of a hybrid style that you had to find. Yeah, I get it. Um, by the way, I did realize the entire group of people I completely forgot to mention, oh, yeah, which are the other writers. Um, so I was the narrative director, used to but I worked, I worked very closely with uh, Kate Dollarhide, who was my primary writing partner, especially at the beginning of the game. Uh, love Kate. I've I've worked with her for many years, and she just did a fantastic job. Also, Zoe Franznick and Merton Radisep, 
um, did an incredible job coming on later in the project and writing a lot of our Act 2 and Act 3 dialogue especially. Um, so we together formed a team of four people spread out over the three years. Uh, sorry, I, I was I was so caught up in, in remembering everyone, I forgot about my own department. Um, but anyway, <laughs> when it came to capturing the voice, you know, I think that part of it was working in fantasy. Fantasy has this kind of tendency towards like faux historicity. So like this sounds like kind of quasi historical, um, but sometimes that can sound very stiff and artificial and not colloquial and uh you just lose a lot of character of casual conversation on the other end of the spectrum if you get too modern and anachronistic you get jarred out of the the moment like you're you stop feeling like you're in a historical setting and i remember watching um the derek jacoby cadfell series yeah that was a great show yeah yeah i loved it and and i thought it was interesting because they went a little more on the formal side than i think we did but something i liked about i i watched a kind of behind the scenes thing with Jarek jacoby and he was talking about how their approach to language was to not really make it so stiff and so formal that it was alienating to the audience because so much of cadfell's appeal is empathizing with especially cadfell as a character but also the characters especially the lovers that are caught up in everything so they struck this balance and I tried to find that as well. And one of the things that's it's interesting you mentioned, how's it going? There's a number of, I speak German, I'm fluent in German, I'm not a native German speaker, but there were a number of places where I tried to mimic the construction of phrases in German within English. So instead of Vigetas or, or, or Vigetas Ihnen, how, how goes it? Um, then you say, how's it going? Or how goes it sometimes? And, um, you know, instead of a bis später, bis dann, you know, uh, until later, until then, that they just say that in English. So it sounds a little more conversational, a little more informal, um, but it also achieves hopefully that bridge where it's not people saying goodbye. There are very few people that say goodbye in the game. They'll usually use some other construction that's meant to mimic because most of the characters are intended to be speaking German most of the time. And so we're trying to kind of ape that and uh, make it oh, feel point, yeah. casual, but not um, not contemporary. We don't want it to sound like people talking right now. And that's a difficult balancing act. And it took a lot of revision for us to get to that point. But um, I'm glad it I'm glad it seems to have worked out. It would be an interesting kind of hardcore difficulty mode for the game to actually ha have it written <laughs> as, as close to... <laughs> You know, the, the 16th century, like how, how they would actually talk as you possibly could. Again, if you're in school, when they make you read Shakespeare, it's like, what? Like, it's, you've, got, you've really got to, like, deconstruct it and, and almost translate it from one, because 15, you know, 16th century English is a different language to the language we speak today, and there's a translation that has to occur. So, no, I thought that was, I thought it was really cool. I, like, I, I appreciate all the, again, that was some as a writer, I found really interesting is it feels, it feels authentic, but it's also accessible. And that is, yeah. that's a hard you know, kind of middle ground to find, I think. And that's where I want to go with it, Gary, is accessible, right? We talk about the glossary in the game, right? Josh is throwing out all these different words. Gary's the big writer. He knows all of it. But there's these fun moments where you're looking at something and it's highlighted on your screen. You go, okay, like, what does that mean? Or where does this come from? And I love what you and the team did with the glossary of, hey, let's take you off the page really quick, which is a very cool, like, zoom off of it and be able to read up on some of these where did that idea come from? How did it work so well? What was kind of the tools and trips, uh, tips to make that happen? So um, Obsidian started using a glossary, uh, not a glossary tool, but like a tooltip feature for lore terms on a game called Tyranny, 
um geez i want to say that was like 2014 or so maybe it was even earlier i can't remember but it was around the time of pillars between pillars and dead fire anyway um when we had a lore term that was maybe hard to remember or not clear what it was you could highlight it with your mouse and it would give you a little pop-up and tell you what it was we had a controller for our game and it was it was focused on console and pc so we needed to find a way to make that work and i said well i don't want to do it as a hover i want to have a mode that you can go in where you can see a, a number of terms or a number of characters highlighted and shown in the margins and i had this idea of the book as a framing element which if you if you get from the beginning to the end of the game it makes hopefully makes a lot more sense how it all like kind of ties together but that book as a thing that kind of contains the story of the game popping out and looking at the margins. I liked the idea of kind of not quite fourth wall breaking, but saying, yes, the story is being tell told within this 2D plane, but it's also being recorded within this 3D book. And this 3D book contains its own 2D pages, which have notes and illustrations of characters to help you kind of go through it. And then on top of that, there's another kind of meta layer, which is Andreas's journal is continually updated with those glossary, uh, you know, entries and character entries. And when you go into to look at the journal, you pop out into the margins of the book, but then Andreas's journal as another 3D book slides on top of that. Um, so it took a lot of iteration to get it feeling good. I do think that one thing that worked in our favor is for the glossary entries, we were, because of the spatial limitations of the of the the fact that it was in the margins of the book, we had a limited amount of text to use. And I think that wound up being a good thing because we don't want players like flying away to a Wikipedia article length, you know, entry. <laughs> if who's Martin Luther, like they, okay, if you want to go and look up the Wikipedia entry, you can just do that whenever you want. But in the context of the game, you just need to know he's a you know professor at the University of Wittenberg. He published this stuff about criticizing the church's sales of indulgences. 1517, there you go, 95 theses. And you know, just the bare essential for you to be like, got it, that's that guy, I understand what's going on. Um, or like someone mentions a saint, who's Saint John? Oh yeah, he's the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, like, okay, got it, understood. So I think that you know, iterating on that and forcing us to write these bite-sized entries on things, keeping everything brief, um, all the character entries within our journal are also really brief. Um, it gives you the essentials, but it doesn't bog you down, so you can keep playing kind of at the pace you need to. And if you already know everything, then you don't need to use it at all. <laughs> if you're a historian, you can just play right through and you're fine. Yeah, really well done. Shout out to you and the team for thinking about that and making it easy for me to comprehend of who are these people, what are they talking about? And also, yeah, shout out to the vibe of the journal, right? Uh, I think IGN brought up the ASMR, right? Sounds that you have. Oh, on. I mean, and I love I the journal. I, I the literally pages. listen to those ASMR calligraphy channels on YouTube, <laughs> where just the sound of a pen scratching yeah. across a parchment. Well, you get so, that. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, it scratches. That scratches me right where I itch. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love all the different fonts, all the different text popping up. And of course, when we talk about accessibility settings, you also have the font, the easy to read font, right? There is this really cool font for each different character and their different backgrounds and their different religions and where they're at. But then there's also, hey, let's make this easier for you to read. What was the balance between those two and where did that kind of stem from? Yeah, I mean, I knew that because we weren't going to have VO, you know, we have a huge cast of characters, but this is a small budget game with a small team. And uh, the idea of voicing, you know, like 150 plus characters, because it's a, it's a really big cast, 
uh, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so we have to convey a lot of character through other means, and text is the way that the story is told. So, um, you know, we invested a lot of time into our fonts. They're historically based, but they're not strictly historical because those would be largely completely unreadable, uh, most of them. <laughs> like, if you look at, you know, 16th century handwriting from, like, Switzerland or Austria or Germany, it's really hard to read. Um, so we we tried to give it as much of the flavor of the writing of the period while making it actually legible. But the thing is, um, you know, it's still not super readable for some people. And, you know, black letter script in some form or fractur or quadrata, that, that monastic script, is just kind of difficult for some people, especially in large quantities. And so at a certain point, I had to accept, like, we need to give people a mode to um, read this in a, something that's just more approachable and, and simple. And we had two typefaces. We had the humanist font and the print font, and those were based on historical very um, legible typefaces or, or book hands in the case of the humanist one. And we just default everything to that and uh, do a couple of other things to make things more readable. Because ultimately, you know, what, no matter what goals I have for the differentiation of text, if a person can't play the game, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if they can't, uh, you know, there are certain lines you have to draw and say like, well, this is just not going to, um, this is just not gonna work. So. Uh, we had to allow that easy read mode just to make sure that people could actually get into the game. Which one did you pick? I, I started with the normal fonts. I was having some fun. I went to easy read you mode. You did? Because I will tell you, I've put a lot of time into this, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Okay, but like, but I, did you try the normal mode, but like maybe using your actual glasses? With my glasses. No, I never wore the glasses. <laughs> I, got a, I'm, I got a giant like. television screen in front of me. But what I found myself was is all of a sudden I laid down on the couch. And I was having so much fun just enjoying the moment and getting comfy with it. So I went into easy fonts and it was just a blast. So we'll talk about that nice. in a moment because we're having a really great interview with Josh Sawyer right now. And it's going to continue right after a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Rocket Money for sponsoring this episode. We all love gobbling up content and we have an understanding of what subscriptions we use, right? Or do we? Do you know how much your subscriptions really cost? Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions when the actual total is closer to 200 plus. That's right, you could be wasting hundreds of dollars each month on subscriptions you don't even know about. There's this app that we love using that takes care of that for us and it's called Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and then cancels for you whatever you don't still want. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. You may even find out you've been double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash kindoffunny. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash kindoffunny. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash kindoffunny. Shout out to Shopify for sponsoring this episode. We love Shopify here at Kind of Funny because we use it to run our very own Kind of Funny store. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. 
Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you will too. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash kfgames, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash kfgames to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash kfgames. Shout out to Policy Genius for sponsoring this episode. Life insurance is the type of thing you never hope you need, but the reality is mortgage payments, childcare, and other expenses don't disappear when you're gone. And since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 per month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees and your personal info is private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Josh, that is one thing I do want to talk about with you. I want to first apologize and say I'm eating my words and I love the game because if we rewind back to June, there was a moment where, of course, we showed off Pentiment to everyone around the world during the Xbox Game Showcase. And it was a very interesting vibe where I came out of that going, I don't know if this is what I want. I was expecting more out of the I was Obsidian skeptical team. about it as well I when I first saw it. With the name Josh Sawyer attached to it, we were going to get a... Fallout New Vegas 2. We were going to get something big and meaty out of this team. And you showed Pentiment. But then I think now where I'm at after 15 plus hours of gameplay, I'm loving the game. And I've really come full circle on it where I'm enjoying it so much. I can't wait to talk more about it with everybody here in the office. And I see the reviews. What does that feel to you and the team right there? Of Like maybe the first initial reaction to this project that is so passionate from you and kind of different from what everybody expects from you to now where we are today receiving all of this praise. Well, I mean, it feels good, obviously. Um, I wasn't super discouraged when we first announced it. Um, you know, I was actually at the, uh, the Xbox showcase in the audience and it's very, especially for the games that were shown at the showcase, very different. Yes. And um, the audience kind of had this like polite applause, like, <laughs> okay. And I'm like, but, but the thing is, you know, it's not like I made this thinking, yeah, man, everybody's going to love this. This is going to sell 10 million units. Um, you know, I, I knew from the beginning it was niche. And the thing is, um, you know, there were some people that were just purely dismissive and like, whatever. And it wasn't even with criticism. They were just like, looks dumb. Okay. Um, <laughs> not, not your game. It's fine. Like, you don't have to like it. That's fine. And then I saw a bunch of people that were skeptical and that's reasonable because it's weird. Like, you know, what is it again? Fine. Just wait. And, but the thing is there were uh, enough people who were really, really excited just based on the 
just the appearance of it and just the basic idea of it um, that I was like, cool. So there's an audience here because again, we're a small team. We know we're not big budget. We know this is going to be on game pass. So just focus on those people. Like we know that there's an audience here. We have a good feeling that we're going to make a game that they're going to really like because they're, they're on board with the idea. So the focus was really on them. And when it came, you know, around the time before, you know, Monday when the review embargo dropped, um, I was pretty confident that some portion of the reviewers were going to be very into it. And then another percentage was going to be either not into it or not like the execution or whatever. And I just kind of resigned myself to like, well, we'll see. And again, as long as it finds its audience, I think it'll be okay because I'm very happy with how it turned out. The team seems very happy with how it turned out. And then it was just a really pleasant surprise to find, you know, uh, I was not expecting to get perfect scores, much less as many perfect scores as we got. <laughs> so that's incredible. And yeah, and there are some people who either just don't really fundamentally don't like it or don't like how I executed on things. And that's totally fine and fair. But I am very happy that a surprising number of reviewers really and players um, really seem to be super excited with the end result. That's great. I, yeah, um, really it's awesome. it's interesting because like I said I was skeptical about it. When I first started, and I'm usually the first person to applaud when someone is doing something mm -hmm, different and out mm -hmm. of the box, and it certainly is that. I just didn't quite know what to make of it because it's so unlike anything else that's out there. Yeah. But it ended up winning you over. I think it's, it's winning. Again, I've only just started with it, but I think I'm going to end up down a similar road. What's interesting is I'm genuinely surprised for me? You have responded because you are Mr. High Octane, High Stakes, High Intensity, <laughs> yep. you know, Modern Warfare guy. That's what, so that's why I wanted to wanted to ask um, you, do you think, now that the reviews are out, and one of the great things about Game Pass, of course, is it has reduced that barrier to entry for, for people to mm -hmm. try things that they might not otherwise try because there's no price cost involved, right? You've already got the Game Pass subscription. It's a relatively small install. You can just like get, jump in and, and see if it's for you. Oh, these reviews are actually pretty good. Maybe I should go check this this game out. Do you, do you, I, I'm just really fascinated to think about like where you think this game will ultimately find its audience. Do you think it's ultimately going to be the majority of this, the audience that you would expect? Like the kind of gamers that inherently already kind of lean more into things that are more cerebral, Again, that have maybe a little bit more of an, in, uh, again, that kind of indie sensibility. Um, or do you imagine that you might, because again, Mike is patient zero here. Do you think there's a chance that you will actually convert, you know, a, a, a decent number of like Mountain Dew chugging Call of Duty bros into 16th century history enthusiasts? Because I think that would be awesome. I would consider that a major win if you did that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's uh, some of the appeal about about services like this, where you're subscribing for the ability to access different things. And I mean, we've seen it in things that are not games. We've seen it in films or shows where people who say, I like this type of show, or I like these type of movies, but while I'm here on whatever, oh, this movie? Oh, I mean, yeah, I heard that was good. That's not normally what I watch, but you know, like I don't have anything to do right now. Like, sure, I'll put it on. And they go like, oh, wow. Like, I'm so glad I watched that. I normally would never have watched it, but I'm so glad I did. And um, I don't think that Pentiment is necessarily like the magic game to do this. I, I've, I know people for, you know, as you know, while Game Pass has been here, while they're subscribed, they tell me I play games that I don't normally, I wouldn't buy necessarily, but then I started playing them and I was really surprised. I didn't know what to make of this game going into it. I'm really glad that I did because I, it turned out I loved it. And so I think there's a lot of games on Game Pass that, that can have that power, but it has to be in the context where the, the proposition to the player is the cost is a little bit of your time.
you know, like if you can download it and you can spare whatever it is, you know, 30 minutes, an hour. And if you're not into it, you're like, eh, no, not my thing. And you move on to something else and you're probably not going to be that upset. But if you get super into it, then fantastic. So I do hope, uh, you know, the barrier to entry with Pentiment, I do think if someone starts playing it and they go like, I don't want to read. <laughs> when do I get to shoot something? I don't yeah. like, like if they don't like to read, they're just like, forget it. it. It doesn't matter. Or if they're like, some people really need VO. Like even if they like reading, they really want VO. Okay, that's fair. And there are certain things where if a person comes into it and they go like, I don't, I don't like that. But like I said, I think I've already seen a number of people who've gone in and said like, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Thought I'd give it a chance. This is not normally the type of game I would play, but I got into it and that's great. Yeah, you won one over in me. I want yeah. you to know that you awesome. and the team, you won me over. <laughs> I really, really liked it. I had a ton of fun. And yeah, shout to Game Pass for making kind of these games accessible to somebody like me who might be hesitant to drop the money on that and jump in and play. I mean, and you and I have talked about this before. Any number of games on Game Pass uh, I think I, that I probably wouldn't have gone outside of my comfort zone yeah. and tried them in the absence of, you know, a demo or some way to kind of try it for free. Like, I'm not going to drop even like 10, 15 bucks on something. I'm not... I'm kind of, I don't know, but like, again, with Game Pass, give it a try. And yep. I think I, I, there's so many, and this to be in the latest one of like, if you just, if you just give me, like you say, like, give me an hour of your time and I'll sell you on it. That's and that's right. all, and all it takes. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to talk about the light RPG elements, right? We stressed that before the release here. And of course, people look at you and the team and they go, okay, Obsidian, give me some stats, give me some perks. Let me make my narrative, my, my whole tree going on. What was the plan and the course of action to kind of step back away from that and make it a little bit the light RPG elements? Where did that come from, from you and the team? You know, accessibility was part of the core of it. Um, you know, most of the games that I've worked on are either kind of complex to very complex in how the systems work. Um, they're kind of difficult to get into, difficult to manage, um, at times frustrating or confusing. And because of the subject matter and the type of the game, I really wanted people to focus on not that stuff. So I wanted them to focus on just the storytelling and their kind of concept for the character. But I also didn't want to abandon the idea of having control over some aspect of who your character was, um, even if it's in details rather than the broad strokes. And also, uh, you know, I wanted us to have choice and consequence in a way that felt, you know, very familiar to people who like Obsidian games. Um, understanding again that it's a, a relatively small story, it's a contained story with a small team writing it, so we can't, you know, do super crazy things, but we can have a lot of impact for little choices and big choices that you make over the course of the game. So I went into it thinking, I don't want to have statistics, I don't want to have trees of things, um, but I do want you to be able to pick things that unlock things in conversations and allow you to do things more easily or sometimes mess things up for you. And then, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to do choice and consequence within the context of the story. I wanted you to be forced to make, in some cases, very difficult decisions and then see how that plays out over the course of the game. Yeah, there was a couple of really fun moments, of course, with that background that I really liked, right? Of like, you choose kind of your own path here and you can feel it when it's playing out of like, oh man, if I chose that that kind of background for my guy, I would have had this I, kind of conversation I, piece. I, I sat on that choose your background screen for a good 10 <laughs> minutes trying to figure out where I, where I wanted to go with it. Yeah, it felt, it was light. It didn't make me scratch my head, Josh, where I was sitting there for 10 minutes 
contemplating which way to go. It was so light that I felt, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to choose this and go with it. Got a little prickly with one of my characters, which I really like. And then, of course, just the fun of seeing that in action when it pops up in the dialogue and you go, oh, man, there's my background here, and now I can put it into play. I, I really, really enjoyed that a lot. And it was fun to see because, yeah, we talk about these RPGs from you and the team there, and that's what kind of players expect. And that's what I want to flow into from a user question. Alberto Lopez writes in and says, how does it, or um, doggy, my apologies, says RPGs have improved a lot over the years, but speech systems seemed large, largely stagnant where you put your stats either way or not. Why do you see, uh, why don't we see more games that require more interesting ways of interacting with dialogue? So, you know, you and the team stepped away from like the stats you chose the different background you know, you as a big RPG guy, do you see us leaning in a different direction of trying new things? Yeah, I mean, the an the short answer is it's hard. <laughs> like, it's, um, you know, sometimes I, I hope I can give a talk about how we construct dialogue, both generally at Obsidian, and there's not one way to do it. I don't think we, there's not a standard way to do it. That's a challenge. But um, writing branching dialogue, especially dialogue that branches based on conditions like, what your character has done, the time of day, uh, your backgrounds, skills, things like that. It's expensive and complicated and difficult. And it's even more difficult to do that and make it still entertaining. Um, it's not actually that hard to make dialogue complicated, but it's very hard to make dialogue complicated and reactive and fun, actually fun and enjoyable to go through. Um, and that's it's that's why it's um you know I think every RPG that comes out kind of tries to tweak the formula a little bit and our approach towards it was to say um, we don't have ranks of skills we have backgrounds that are flat checks and those unlock things but many times the things that you're unlocking are just for flavor sometimes the things that you're unlocking make people annoyed like you're basically being a know-it-all that comes up a number <laughs> of times especially with characters like Sister Illuminata or Father Garnet where you can kind of lecture them on things and they're really aggravated. And so you hopefully start to learn like, just because something is unlocked does not mean that I should pick it and say it. Um, and then, you know, I borrowed uh, one idea from Disco Elysium, which is that little choices that you make in conversations can come back for a check. So if you need to convince someone of something and you've talked a certain way or behaved a certain way, you'll see that reflected in the persuasion interface where you're like, oh God, I shouldn't have made that really like irreverent comment because like I'm trying to convince her that I'm really pious and that kind of works against me. Uh, so, um, you know, that was our, but it's a, it's a spin on systems we've seen before. I think it's, um, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I do think it's difficult to innovate in this space um, while maintaining that level of entertainment and characterization. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a challenge. We're all trying, we're all trying to push it. And uh, every once in a while, we do something well, and people go like, oh, that was incredible, and we keep going with it. <laughs> yeah, you did really well, and I did love that moment of, like, here it is, all of the conversations I had with this character right on display of, like, oh, man, I thought you and I were really connecting. I thought I did good on those choices, but I guess I didn't, you know? And so that yeah. made me smile a couple of times. And I want to talk about, you know, the choices and actions and feeling your consequences there. It was funny. I was playing in the studio uh, earlier, and I, I got up out of my chair and said, all right, everybody, I'm about to point the finger at somebody, and it's going down for real. And it felt so much fun to have that feeling and that kind of risk-reward, where will this story turn 
How has that been for you and the team to watch that from, of course, now having the game released, watching everybody play that? What is that moment like where you smile and go, oh, here it comes. They're going to choose somebody. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it kind of falls on some predictable paths. Um, I'll be interested to see the more people who play it and the more people who go through the ends of each act. Excuse me. Um, I'll be very interested to see what the trends are. I kind of can predict how some things are going to go. But then again, sometimes the accusations don't go the way that players expect, um, especially in the first act. You can potentially bring up as many as five people to the archdeacon, and um, you can just say, like, you sort it out. And then the result can be kind of surprising. And, you know, uh, I think it's interesting because people have realized that it's not a great feeling, that responsibility. Like, once you see it play out, it feels not good, which it shouldn't. You're you're essentially condemning someone to death. And that death can be really rough, and the impact that it has on people in the community can be really devastating. And it reflects back on you because everyone goes, like, you're the guy who did this. Like, you told the guy that this is the person who did it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, in a, I think, you know, in in a lot of traditional detective stories or detective games, there's a person who unambiguously killed the person, whether they had quote unquote a good reason or not. And when you put them away, there's this feeling of, um, well, they're the person who did it. So they they did it and I'm okay with whatever the consequences are, more or less. And I think with Pentiment, um, I'm seeing a lot of sentiment where people are saying like, I don't like that I have to, I don't like that I have to make this decision because I don't really feel good about making anyone pay for this. But I also know that if I don't, then this innocent, clearly innocent person is going to die. Um, so it is forcing the player into something that is inherently supposed to feel uncomfortable and uh, just kind of feeling their way through the consequences of that. Yeah, you did a great job on that one. There's so many fun moments doing that and seeing that. And you brought up the term generational game, which I really like of like, I see my actions reflected generations through this town later on, which I really, really love of how that keeps up with me and keeps the story going, which is really cool. Uh, I want to talk about the future and get into some viewer questions because we only have you for a little bit longer here. Of course, the interesting one of when we talk about these passion projects and these small teams within the larger organization of Obsidian, we'll talk about you and your team. What is that like now that it's done, right? Like, is the 13 members of your team look at you, give you the peace sign and say, hey, we're heading off to go work on the other projects like Avowed, Outer Worlds 2, and so on? Or is it you and the team looking at each other going, what's next? Let's stick together and do something else. What happens now? Um, I mean, it, it remains to be seen. The game literally just came out. So in the in the immediate future, we're focusing on fixing bugs and doing, um, you know, features by request. So if we see a lot of people saying like, oh, we really need this to for usability or there's some issue, you know, like a lot of people have reported. It's funny, some people, a number of reviews have said like, I love the sound of the pen on the parchment and other people, it, it really drives them up the wall and they really can't stand listening to it. So we're looking at features to like work on that and mm -hmm. the dialogue speed and, and things like that. So there's gonna be features, there's gonna be bug fixes that we're gonna look at. Um, we do have to see how the how the game does kind of like 
short term, long term. Uh, but there are, you're right, there are other big projects here. Grounded is in 1.0, but they're still working on that. So there's a lot of potential to do different things here, and we're just going to have to see where it goes. Okay. And what about for yourself? Does the team look at you? I know, like you said, it just happened. We're just past it. But, like, does the team look at somebody like yourself and go, Josh, you got to come over here? Or, like, Josh, we need you to do this now? What is that vibe with yourself as kind of the, the head honcho over there? Well, I'm the studio design director, so um, I will be going back to at least giving feedback on on different projects. Okay. And you know, I do occasionally, when when desired, I will come onto a team if I have time. And uh, you know, if it's to work out a system or to help lead a, a sub team on a particular feature or a system design, you know, I'll be involved in that. So I'll probably be doing some of that at least in the. Um, not the immediate future, but like the short-term future, because uh, that's always kind of just part of my job here. Yeah. Uh, I want to go to some viewer questions now to start wrapping this down. Alberto Lopez brings up, hey, how does it feel to finally make something that you've always wanted to make? We talked about that at the beginning, but then ends it with, what other projects would you like to do next? Is there another crazy passion project that you would like to do that you've kept in your back pocket all these years? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously it's it's great to finally get this this type of game done. Um, like I said, I didn't. This is not the type of historical game that I I imagined, you know, 20 years ago. But uh, I'm really really happy with how it turned out. I'm so happy that people are responding well to it. Um, and yeah, there's a bunch of other projects. I have no idea if I can do them, but like, you know, I've mentioned before, I had this very off the wall. This is a very off the wall idea, but basically like a, a bike shop simulator where you're running like a bicycle repair and sale shop in a, in a small community. And um, you're restoring and repairing bikes for people and dealing with all different social strata of people in a, in a town. Um, I'm really into cycling and restoring bikes and I've interfaced with a lot of shop owners and the communities that surround them. And uh, I just think it's interesting and there's opportunity for a lot of neat little, little social dynamics there. Um, I also really always uh, still think that it would be cool to make a an srpg a tactical game in the pillars of eternity setting so something that's not really focused like the the pillars of eternity like one and two but um more focused on something that's more in the vein of final fantasy tactics or fire emblem or games of that sort i think those are are those are more on the small to like medium-sized projects uh big projects i don't i don't know like you know, I've been in small project mode for so long, it's kind of hard for me to think about things at a, at a really large scale. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't. I wouldn't say I would not work on a big project again, but that just hasn't been where my mindset has been for the last three years. So I want to praise you and give you a big shout out. Yes, the bike simulator. Please do that, Josh, right away. <laughs> I mean, I, know. I mean the, the, the landscape has never been more well seen. Gas station simulator, <laughs> Gas power station wash. Sim, come on. You name it, right? And I love the balance yeah. of like, we could have the fun with you, Josh, of like kind of like the lake, bringing in more dynamic of like learning about the town, talking with the different yeah, town just, folks, just feeling, just in feeling bike, the vibe, having yeah. some fun. I love this. Coming from Tahoe, <laughs> I'm all about the bike shop. I like this idea. I had a really good bike shop guy up in Tahoe who always made me smile. His name was Mike as well. Big old curly afro, and I would bring in my snow bike. Would they, would they just call him Bike Mike? Bike Mike. <laughs> he, he was mountain bike Mike, actually. And I'd bring in my snow bike, and he would always get so amped up because nobody else had one in town. He would love working on it, and we would share stories about the different resorts that we'd go to, getting excited about the snow coming in, and, of course, in the spring and summer, getting excited to ride bikes together. So I like that, Josh. I really, really do. Nice. Uh, of course, <laughs> 
I know you know we had to go there. We have to talk Fallout New Vegas because, of course, it is an Xbox beloved title. Everybody loves it. And Paragon Gerard wrote in and says, how was it working on Fallout New Vegas, taking someone else's property and creating something new with it? Also following you and the team's wonderful work on Pentiment, could you see yourself working on another Fallout project in the future? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's weird to to think about. I, and I, it's, um, I've gone through this weird arc because I played Fallout 1 in college, actually Fallout 1 and 2 in college, right toward the end of, of college. And then I went to work for Black Isle Studios. And at the time, I, I remember when I started in the industry, I was like, I want to work on a D&D game, Dungeons and Dragons. And I got to do that immediately. That was fantastic. <laughs> and then I was like, well, and everyone at the studio was like, we're going to make Fallout 3. We just got to get through the next few years and these other projects. And then we're going to do Fallout 3. And we started on it. And because, I mean, it started at Interplay in what eventually became Black Isle Studios. And then Black Isle fell apart. and the Fallout property went to Bethesda, and then a number of years passed, and I was like, well, I guess I'm not gonna be able to make a Fallout game. And then <laughs> Bethesda made Fallout 3, and then we had the opportunity to use New Vegas, and I brought back a lot of the ideas that we, as a, as a group of people, had talked about at Black Isle Studios to make Fallout New Vegas, and then a bunch of new ideas as well. And uh, yeah, that was, that was super fulfilling and super fantastic. And, uh, you know, it was a crazy development because it was only 18 months and we had never used that uh, engine before. But, uh, yeah, like, I mean, I love Fallout. I love the setting. Uh, I could see myself working in it again. But, you know, we'll see where the future takes me. All right. I, I like that. Uh, two quick Fallout, Fallout ones. One, of course, what's the dream setting for you, Josh? Of course, we've seen different settings in Fallout. Is there a spot where you're like, oh, Mike and Gary, we got to go to Vancouver. Or we got to go to Australia in the Outback. Is there a crazy Fallout setting that you would love to do? You know, I, I'm not really sure. I haven't thought about it in quite a while um, because, again, it kind of like it came into my life and then floated away. Um, you know, like uh, in the past, I've said, you know, people have talked about New Orleans. Um, I do think California or the Midwest would also be very interesting. Um, a big, I'm a big believer in finding things that obviously I have to be passionate about it as a director, but also that the team is really excited about. And also that works within the larger idea of, of the property, because again, you know, working on something like Pentiment, which is just its own thing in the middle of nowhere, I can kind of make decisions more or less however I want. But when it's part of a larger IP and franchise, it has to kind of work within a, a larger vision of what is Fallout? And I don't get to decide everything about that. It's not my thing. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool places in the U.S. A lot of people have also talked about what about Fallout in other parts of the world. I think those are interesting as well. Uh, I don't know. I think there's lots of cool opportunities. It really depends on what the moment is and what the team looks like. And yeah, that's great. And my final one with Fallout, of course, what are some of the teachings that you took away from your experience with Fallout? What are some of the pieces that we could see in Pentiment that you put to use here? What are some of the learnings and things that you've always brought with you into your future games? Yeah, I think, um, you know, with Fallout, we we went to, you know, I looked at how Fallout 3 did their percentage-based skill checks and I didn't like the randomization and the save scumming that that resulted, meaning people reloading a lot to kind of yes. like make a check and that felt kind of weird. So I was like, well, let's make them straight threshold checks. But then every time you saw that option in dialogue, it was the no brainer to pick like, well, I unlocked it and it's always a good thing. 
So one of the biggest takeaways from that is trying to get away from the mentality that because a dialogue option appears and it's unlocked, you should always pick it because it's always the best option. And in Pentiment, I worked really hard with the narrative designers to make sure that when our background options appear, it's cool to see the option and it's interesting, but sometimes it's not helpful and sometimes it's actually counterproductive. Um, so that the player has to put a little more thought into like, um, maybe I don't just pick this thing automatically because I see it. it it's not an automatic win. Um, and, uh, you know, again, with, with Fallout New Vegas, even though they're very different in scope, you know, people like to see the impact of choice and consequence. And, you know, New Vegas was actually the first game where there was a really large scale of that on a, on a small level and a large level. And in Pentiment, I tried to look at it from the perspective of we have this central storyline that runs through, but then there are significant choices about individual people and relationships that play out over the course of the, the game. And at the end, I'm, I don't want to spoil the ending, but you get to see a lot of those smaller choices reflected in the actual ending. And, uh, you know, that's what I, I think people take a lot away from that because they see the aggregation of all these little things they did over the course of game come to play at the end. And, and that's really satisfying. That's great. Gary, as we wrap up, any final questions for Josh here? No, I just I, I just had a thought about locations for games. I oh, snap, Gary. I personally me. think that Cleveland has gotten very short shrift from game developers <laughs> over Thank the you, years. Thank you, Gary. Clearly. Thank you. There you go. See? There's already, there's already a groundswell. You know, no, I, as someone <laughs> from Cleveland, I'm going to say Cleveland is not Cleveland an interesting place. Cleveland or GTA <laughs> Cleveland, I just feel like Cleveland's time is coming. Yeah, that's all you get, Gary. Is right. That's no, how we're going to no, end no, the no. episode Cleveland, right there. You, you spend an afternoon there, you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then you get the hell out of there. That's what I say. <laughs> I know, but let's not forget the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was put there like out of pity because no. like, there's nothing else going on. New York on. already had the Baseball uh, History Museum. We needed something, all right? We needed something. <laughs> Well, with that, we want to thank Josh for his team. And, of course, congratulations to you and the team over at Obsidian and everyone who works so hard on Pentiment. Again, if you get the opportunity, go check it out. It's on Game Pass. It is a ton of fun. Of course, we didn't do a review here because we got to sit down with Josh. But I'll tell you, it really won me over. And I am blown away that I had so much fun with this. And I cannot wait to see it through all the way to the end because I know I'm right there. And it's only picking up and making me say wow and bravo every time I play it. So, Josh, congratulations. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's X-Cast. Any final words for the audience to say goodbye? Uh, just again, thank you for having me and, um, for the people that are checking it out, thank you for taking a chance on something that I understand is, is very unusual and weird. And I hope that if you do, you have a good experience with it. What's one tip you would give me for someone who's like only like an hour or two in and is still kind of like figuring out the lay of the land? Um, I would say, uh, use the map because the map is helpful. And, um, you know, it, I acknowledge that it does have a slow start and if you get to the murder, and just after the murder and you're still not into it, maybe it's not your game, but give it until then. Give it until after the murder and when things open up. And if you're not into it, fair, that's fair. Head out. It's okay. I won't, I won't cry. But uh, that's kind of the, the point where you really got a sense of whether you're going to be into it or not. That's, that, I think that, that's always been a rule of thumb for me as well from a social setting and whatever. Like, let's at least wait until there's a murder. Like, give this a chance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my tip for you, Gary, sometimes it's best not to say anything at all and let it just kind of play out. Uh, let me tell you, when, when, when Josh first said that, I thought there's some wisdom of the ages for uh, the social media generation <laughs> oh. right there. Sometimes it's okay to not 
do that tweet. It's well, okay to say nothing. That will be the end of the episode. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and hanging out with me, Josh, and Gary for this awesome talk about Pentiment. Hopefully you play it this week. Let us know if you do in the comments down below, and we'll catch you back here next week for a very fun episode before the holiday season. Goodbye, gamers. Peace.